You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 20. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, kind of few this morning. This, this must be the elect. <laughs> Glad you made it. The bad weather. One more coming. And turn to book four today. Before we do so, let's look to the Lord in prayer using, as we do each class, a prayer from John Calvin. Let's pray. Enlighten us, O God, by your Spirit, in the understanding of your word, and grant us the grace to receive it in true fear and humility, that we may learn to put our trust in you, to fear and honor you by glorifying your holy name in all our life, and to yield you the love and obedience which faithful servants owe to their master and children to their fathers seeing it has led you to call us to the number of your servants and children. Amen. Before we get uh, into the beginning of uh, book four, uh, take a look at the outline that uh, I have given in the syllabus. I think it's there, isn't it? Outline of book four. Let me just um, alert you to what's coming. The title of book four, these, these titles are important, and uh, you should know those, particularly if you're doing the exam, but if you're not, you should know them also. The title of book four is The External Means or Aids by Which God Invites Us into the Society of Christ and Holds Us Therein. In my copy, of the Institutes, the page that uh, introduces book uh, four says AIDS, but on page um, 1011, 1011, it says the external means or aims. Is that uh, still how it reads? Page 1000. 11, it's not two different words. That aims is a mistake. That's just a misprint. And I keep thinking they're going to correct that, but aims. So change that to aids, as it is on the preceding page. The external means or aids is how it should read. External means are aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. In a few minutes, I'm going to kind of um, dissect that sentence in some detail. Calvin, as he begins uh, book four, it's actually section two, gives his own summary statement of what is coming, the church government orders and powers 
That would be government orders means ministry, ministers of the church. It's government, it's polity, it's ministry, and it's powers. What is the authority? What is the power of the church? Then the sacraments, and lastly, the civil order. So in that uh, brief phrase, uh, Calvin sums up uh, what is um, coming in book four. And this is a kind of uh, outline of book four. First two chapters deal with the true and the false church. We'll look at that today. And then chapter three with um, church officers or ministers and chapters 4 through 11, church uh, government. In chapter 4, uh, Calvin looks at the ancient church, the early church, and explores how the early church was governed. And then in 5 through 11, uh, the papal church, the Roman Catholic Church. We're not uh, going to get into those chapters. Just refer to those uh, briefly. Those chapters um, do, however, reveal uh, Calvin's rather considerable knowledge of church history. We know that Calvin was um, able in a good many fields, but um, generally not thought of as a church historian. But uh, as you read uh, those chapters in Book 4, 5 through 11, you'll see Calvin's um, skill in the discipline of church history. And then church discipline, that's the power of the church. Chapter 12, we'll come to that. There's a chapter on vows, which is uh, primarily a critique of uh, Roman Catholic monasticism. And then chapters 14 through 19 on the sacraments, 14 through 17 on the true sacraments, the two sacraments that Calvin views as um, valid, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then chapters 18 and 19 on the false sacraments, Calvin's um, critique of the Mass, and the five other, uh, he calls them ceremonies. The Roman Catholic Church had seven sacraments, as Catholic Church still does. But uh, Calvin accepted only two of those as scriptural sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the final chapter on civil government. So that's a kind of quick uh, look at what is coming in uh, book uh, four. We'll come uh, today uh, to uh, Calvin's, the beginning of Calvin's treatment uh, on the church. And uh, let me just make some um, introductory remarks about this, and then we'll see how this material relates to the first three books. Uh, Calvin is viewed, of course, as a reformer of the church. One of the more recent biographies of Calvin, by no means the the most recent, but uh, fairly recent, uh, the book by T.H.L. Parker on Calvin, just called John Calvin, a biography. And uh, Dr. Parker said in that book, as I have been writing the book, 
Calvin has more and more taken on the character and stature of a doctor of the Catholic Church. So Parker, looking at the life of Calvin, sees him as a, as a churchman, a doctor of the Catholic Church. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. It means the universal church. We'll look at uh, Calvin's reasons for leaving the Roman Catholic Church and explore that uh, theme a bit uh, further. But uh, Calvin was a reformer of the church. Uh, as you know from his, um, his biography, his life story, that was not his uh, initial uh, goal. Uh, Calvin did not plan to be a, a reformer of the church. In fact, he was very reluctant to uh, be cast in that role. Uh, you, rem you remember the famous uh, incident when he, he came to uh, Geneva. It was August 1536. He was a refugee from France, decided that it was necessary for him to leave France for good, good reasons because his, his life was in danger. He wanted to go to Strasbourg to uh, pursue um, a scholarly uh, career. He'd already written a couple of books, um, did not um, make uh, waves particularly, but uh, got his feet wet in this um, life of a scholar and apparently liked it and thought that that was what he wanted to do. But he had to detour um, south because of the war that was going on between Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire, and Francis I, King of France, that made it impossible for him to go directly from Paris down to Strasbourg. And so he kept going south and passed through um, Geneva, sometimes called the Divine Detour because God certainly had a hand uh, in all of that. And there he met William Farrell. William Farrell was um, a very um, fiery reformer. Somebody has called him a hot gospeler. And uh, he was uh, preaching um, in and around uh, Geneva. Uh, Parker, in Parker's uh, biography of Calvin, Parker says, Farrell would act while angels debated. So he was a man that uh, didn't wait. And he discovered uh, Calvin's presence uh, in town. This is how Calvin puts it in uh, Calvin's own words, his um, preface to the Psalms commentary, which he wrote um, later, late in his life, but it's about the only place that Calvin ever talks about himself, so we don't have a lot of uh, personal biographical information directly from Calvin. But uh, we do in the Psalms, in the preface to the Psalms commentary, and Calvin, thinking back to 1536, said that uh, what he really uh, desired was uh, to continue as a kind of private uh, scholar, in fact, the, the more recent book that he had written, which was the first edition of the Institutes, and came out in 1536, the same year uh, that Calvin appears in Geneva, uh, would be quite a sensation. And uh, Calvin wanted to uh, 
to do that, to give his life to that cause of writing books and study. But he said, uh, that was my plan until Farrell detained me at Geneva, not so much by counsel and exhortation as by a dreadful curse, which I felt to be as if God had from heaven laid his mighty hand upon me to arrest me. Someplace else, Calvin says, God thrust me into the game. He was kind of on the sidelines until, until this happened. When uh, Farrell discovered that uh, Calvin was not um, really eager to help him and uh, was determined to go on uh, to Strasbourg, in Calvin's words, he proceeded to utter the imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to help when the necessity was so urgent. <laughs> well, I'm not recommending Farrell's tactics there in getting guidance for somebody else, especially in the rather strong words that he undoubtedly used, but uh, it worked in, in Calvin's case. In fact, uh, Calvin says this, by this imprecation, I was so terror-struck that I gave up the journey I had undertaken. Calvin, a sensitive person, and to have that uh, blast coming from Farrell was more than he could handle. So he stayed um, in Geneva, and that really committed him uh, to his life's work. Uh, although he would be expelled with Farrell in a couple of years, he would then come back three years later. But uh, his life work was set uh, now as a churchman, pastor of the church, preacher, person involved in the reform of the church. And uh, interestingly, he still got to write books. But uh, the books were, I'm sure, quite um, different from what he would have produced uh, if he had been able to retreat to a kind of uh, ivory tower. Uh, I think it's Parker who says that um, Calvin wrote the Institutes against the background of um, teething trouble, babies crying in the house. Uh, not Calvin's own babies because the only child he had died uh, almost immediately at birth is uh, an its son. But uh, Calvin had family living with him in Geneva sisters, brothers, and others, and their children uh, were there uh, crying. So Calvin was not in the ivory tower, but uh, he wrote the Institutes as a busy pastor in a kind of hectic uh, household uh, with all the pressures that um, faced him, faced pastors today, and even more. As we think of Calvin's life, it's um, just astonishing uh, how he was able to get so much done and um, yet uh, he did. So he became a pastor. He did go on to Strasbourg. And uh, that was a very important time for Calvin. Uh, John T. McNeil in the History and Character of Calvinism says that Calvin's Strasbourg period was much more than an interruption of his activities in Geneva. 
both church and school had much to teach him, and he was in a mood to learn. Uh, the Reformation in Strasbourg was already advanced under the uh, guidance of uh, Martin Bucer, and uh, Bucer became a kind of mentor to Calvin for those uh, three golden years, as they're called, that Calvin spent in Strasbourg. And uh, Calvin learned much from Bucer. Not so much, I think, theology. He'd already written 1536 edition of the Institutes, but he learned how to be a pastor, how to serve a church. Um, great advance uh, in Calvin's thinking uh, came during this time in Christian education because there was a school there that uh, Bucer had begun and in the life and ministry and work of the church. Bucer was 18 years older than Calvin, so he was a kind of a father figure uh, to John Calvin uh, during this time. We see, as we trace Calvin's life, a, a growing uh, emphasis uh, on the church, both in his own uh, experience and involvement as a pastor and also in his writing. The reform in Geneva, uh, which Calvin uh, undertook, and really was the work of his, his lifetime, uh, he saw that uh, as his, his primary uh, goal uh, to reform the church, uh, to uh, bring it into line with what he thought was uh, the standards of, of the Bible. It's interesting that Calvin dedicated his uh, Titus commentary uh, to Farrell and to Pierre Veret. Veret was another reformer who was serving um, not far away in Lausanne. And uh, Calvin dedicated the commentary that he wrote on the book of Titus to Farrell and Veret. And he says that as Titus completed the work begun by Paul, so he was the successor to Farrell and Veret to complete the work uh, that uh, had been begun by these two reformers um, in the region of Geneva. When Calvin attempts his uh, work of reform in Geneva, he's, he's governed by, by two great ideas. One, of course, the primary idea is the reform principle, which he finds in the, in the Scripture. In other words, Calvin's reformation was not, um, was not innovation. Uh, to him, reformation was restoration. He wanted to restore the church to its uh, original uh, integrity. And he will often uh, refer to um, the regulative principle, not uh, in those words. Uh, that's the expression we use for it. But um, if you look at the commentary on Hebrews 8.5, you'll see how Calvin expresses this. Uh, Hebrews 8.5 says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, 
He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And um, the way Calvin interprets this and applies it is, we are taught here that any mode of worship which is based on human inventions is false and contrary to God's command. Because God gives us instructions that everything is to be done according to his instruction, it is unlawful for us to do anything different. So, Scalvin looks at the church in Geneva and attempts to um, bring it into line uh, with the scripture. Uh, he follows this idea. God has told us what ought to be done. Uh, in Hebrews 8.5, it applies particularly to worship. Uh, but Calvin would um, also extend that to um, the order of the church, the polity of the church, and so on. So you might say that's the primary principle that Calvin is using. A secondary principle that Calvin uses, and uses more than we would expect, I think, is tradition. He not only looks to see what the scripture says, he looks to see what the church has done in its history. Now, Calvin is, is quite critical of some of the tradition of the church, but uh, generally not of the early church. He's critical of the medieval church, but uh, he believed that the church uh, remained basically healthy, both in its doctrine and in its, and in its practice, uh, for the first 500 years consensus of the first 500 years that Calvin would uh, speak about uh, from time to time. So Calvin is not um, of the mind to just wipe out everything uh, that has uh, transpired in uh, 1,500 years of Christian history and attempt to go back uh, to some kind of New Testament pattern as the Anabaptists and the other radicals uh, wanted to do, but um, he wanted to use um, wisely and, and thoughtfully uh, the early tradition of the church. In some ways, that may seem to bring a tension between the regulative principle and his appreciation for tradition, and I'm not uh, altogether sure how Calvin worked um, this out in his own mind, but we have uh, examples of uh, Calvin's um, appreciation for uh, tradition uh, in, for instance, the mode of baptism. We'll come to that uh, later. But Calvin was quite sure that the, the mode of baptism practiced in the New Testament was immersion. And uh, when he was dealing with um, the baptism of the Ethiopian by Philip that go down into the water. Uh, Calvin doesn't uh, get nervous at that point like Presbyterians do. <laughs> we generally point out that it's down in the desert, so it must not have been much water, and maybe they just got their feet wet, something like that. But Calvin says the early practice was immersion, but uh, the real significance of um, the mode is the application of water, so it really doesn't matter how much water as long as water is used. And 
he's quite comfortable with the idea that the early practice was immersion, but um, the contemporary traditional practice was by effusion, which uh, Kelvin did, but uh, without uh, too much concern that it wasn't being done exactly the way it was being done in the New Testament. I suppose Calvin would reconcile the regulative principle with his acceptance of tradition there by saying uh, the New Testament doesn't command, at least in his understanding, immersion. It commands the use of water. And so uh, to um, use less water than was used originally would not be a violation of that command. As we see Calvin develop his liturgy, we see the same thing happening. He's appreciative of traditional forms of um, worship. And although Calvin's liturgy is not nearly so traditional as Luther's or as the Book of Common Prayer of Cranmer, still he preserves uh, much of um, the early style of Christian worship. Perhaps the most um, striking place where uh, tradition comes in, and you can add this, um, I have mode of baptism and liturgy in the syllabus, but um, in church government, uh, you also have uh, Calvin's um, acceptance of, of tradition At least his um, willingness to, to tolerate um, certain developments in the early stages of church government, although he did not advocate uh, these ideas for the government of the church in Geneva. But in chapter uh, 4 of book 4, that's the condition of the ancient church and the kind of government in use uh, before the papacy, if you go through that, you'll see Calvin dealing with uh, the early period. Uh, by before the papacy, he means before about 500. Of course, the Roman Catholic view is that the papacy starts with the early church, but uh, Calvin doesn't accept that. There's the early church, and then about 500 or so, uh, you can talk about the papal church. But uh, as Calvin investigates that early history, you know, it, it moves from a simple, um, we would think, and Calvin did too, biblical um, polity with uh, elders who are also called bishops. The two are interchangeable and deacons. To uh, bishops, archbishops, patriarchs, you get all of these steps in the development of church polity early on in the history of the church. But rather than condemning all of that, Calvin says uh, this was connected with the maintenance of discipline. So Calvin sees the, the hierarchy of the church developing, and he explains it as uh, connected with the maintenance of discipline. And then he talks about archdeacons, Calvin certainly doesn't have in his polity, but neither um, is it found in the New Testament. But he says this is a new and more exact kind of administration. 
So he kind of sees a proper role for the archdeacons and then comes to doorkeepers, acolytes, and subdeacons. <laughs> All of those uh, offices existed in the early church too. Fairly early, not right at the beginning, but within the first five centuries. But uh, rather than um, railing against that, uh, Calvin says these were steps in preparation for ministry. So you can see that, that Calvin uh, is concerned for basic scriptural principles, but has a good bit of tolerance for different ideas that can develop uh, in the history of the church. Now, he doesn't embody all of that within his own polity, but I think his, um, his relaxed attitude there uh, toward tradition uh, shows a certain breadth in Calvin uh, that we don't always subscribe uh, to him. Now you come to the following chapters after um, chapter 4, chapters 5 through 11, when he's dealing with what he calls the papal church. And uh, there he can be quite uh, strong in his opinion with a good bit of invective uh, added um, in what he considers uh, very improper changes and um, a real deterioration uh, in the life of the church. Calvin's increasing emphasis on the church, reform in Geneva, and then in his doctrine of the church or his writing in the institutes and elsewhere on the church, uh, we see uh, the importance uh, of the church for Calvin. As Calvin laid increasing stress on the church in his practice, and so he gives a corresponding uh, significance uh, to the doctrine of the church and the institutes. Here I think he goes far beyond Luther. Uh, Luther doesn't pay a lot of attention to the institution of the church. Luther is concerned with the, with the gospel. Uh, preach the gospel and everything else will take care of itself. So, as far as the church was concerned, uh, Luther was willing to let the state uh, structure the church to a large extent. But uh, Calvin, a generation later, gives much more uh, attention to the doctrine of the church. Calvin uh, faced, um, more than Luther, uh, proliferating sectarianism, that is, many, many churches of different kinds, uh, particularly on the fringe of the Reformation. And he also faced a resurgent Catholicism that was being um, strengthened by the ongoing Council of Trent and uh, the work of the Jesuits. So the issue of the church, what is the church? What is the true church? How do we describe the church? How do we understand the church becomes much more uh, central uh, to Calvin's uh, thinking. There are, two, there are two themes that I think we see as we look at Calvin's uh, doctrine of the church, not only in the Institutes, but um, in other writings as well. And Calvin wrote quite a few treatises that um, are collected, and we can read those. 
a summer on theological issues, but uh, many uh, deal uh, with uh, the church, its practice, its polity, and its authenticity. The two uh, themes that we need to be aware of are these, uh, the purity of the church and the unity of the church. Uh, We'll look uh, a little later at uh, Calvin's view of the purity of the church. I recommend uh, Dr. Barker's um, Calvin and Ecclesiastical Separation, which was an article in the Presbyterian Journal in 1985 for a good statement of Calvin's view of church purity and when it becomes necessary to separate from an impure church. I remember a few years ago a group of us visited uh, Princeton Seminary and um, we were doing uh, a tour. I was giving lectures at Princeton. We went to the university and to the seminary and to the cemetery. You have to go to both in Princeton or all three. And uh, at the seminary, we were being uh, welcomed by one of the professors there who's a friend of mine. And uh, this professor uh, said something about um, the fact that uh, schism is a sin and uh, undoubtedly had in mind the fact that we were PCA people, not PCUSA people. But he said it's a sin, but it's not an unforgivable sin. And I suppose he thought we would feel better about it uh, if uh, he added that we could be forgiven of the sin of schism. But it struck me as a rather strange uh, statement for a Presbyterian to make. Because um, Calvin certainly left the church in his day. And uh, we'll come to that and see reasons for it. But uh, we should also emphasize uh, Calvin's uh, concern for the unity of the church. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians 1.10, he said, The most important principle of our religion is this, that we should be in concord among ourselves. His letter to Cranmer, April 1552. This was when um, Edward VI had become the boy king. And uh, Calvin was concerned to bring unity within the, the Protestant groups. He said, So much does this concern me that could I be of any service, I would not grudge to cross even ten seas, if need be, on account of it. I suppose that is a kind of daring statesman for a man who lived most of his life in landlocked Switzerland um, to think about crossing Ten seas would be uh, a daring feat. But Calvin says, I would do that. I would do anything if I could, uh, could bring uh, unity uh, to the church. Uh, Calvin yearned for unity. 
he even attended a few um, colloquies with Roman Catholics without a great deal of um, hope, but at least um, he was there uh, to see if there could be some sort of bringing together of the different parts of the church. But uh, he was also fearful that unity might be established on, a, on the wrong basis, kind of covering over of differences rather than uh, uh, really uh, commitment to uh, the Word of God. I think um, one writing of uh, these um, writings that I referred to a moment ago that you might uh, note on this theme uh, was a writing that Calvin produced in 1549. It was his response to the Augsburg Interim. Uh, that was a, that was a law that had been passed uh, in the empire. Um, Charles V wanted to to bring unity uh, to the empire, and um, the Augsburg Interim basically stated Roman Catholic doctrines, but with some concessions to Protestants. And uh, Calvin could not accept that uh, because um, Roman Catholic uh, teaching on justification and other doctrines were imposed and the concessions to Protestants were, in his mind, minor. But uh, his, his book in 1549 was called On the True Peace and unity of the Reformed Church. You can see something of Calvin's concern there uh, to bring uh, unity uh, to the church. All right, all of that uh, has to do with Calvin and the church, kind of background material. What I want to do next, and this comes before the next uh, main point in the syllabus, which is an investigation of the title, is to talk a little bit about the relation uh, between um, book four and the, and the first three books, just to see where we are in the overall um, development of Calvin's thought. You remember that uh, Calvin is following the Apostles' Creed, among other structures, this is one, one structural form that uh, he has in mind. I believe in God the Father, treats that in book one. I believe in Jesus Christ, treats Christ in book two. I believe in the Holy Spirit preach the Holy Spirit in book three. I think as we say that, I should just mention what I've mentioned before, is that Calvin is very Trinitarian in his thought. So book one is the Trinity, book two is the Trinity, and book three is the Trinity. But within the Trinity, there is special emphasis on the Father in book one, Christ in book two, and the Holy Spirit in book three. And the Apostles' Creed continues, I believe, the Holy Catholic uh, Church, communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And uh, with um, Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, uh, we can see all of that in book four. But I think we have to say that um, he also treats uh, communion of saints and forgiveness of sins in book three. So these themes in the Apostles' Creed are treated in both book three and book four in the Institutes. And then the final two statements, resurrection of the body and life everlasting, uh, Calvin has already treated that uh, in the end of book three in chapter 25. You know, uh, from our reading today, uh, Calvin makes a a point of something that maybe you haven't thought about, but um, he says there's no good reason to assert the N, I-N, in the phrase, I believe, in the church. That's uh, 412. Creed says, I believe in... God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and so on. I believe in the Holy Ghost, and then there's a comma or a semicolon, and then you have a list, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And Calvin says that um, we should leave the in out, at least... uh, not repeat it uh, in our thinking. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And we believe in the Holy Ghost, but we don't believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And he wants to make this distinction. We believe in God because our mind reposes in Him as truthful and our trust rests in him. So, we believe in God, but we believe certain other truths. We don't believe in them. We believe in God. And uh, then we believe that there is a holy Catholic Church. There is such a thing as communion of saints. We believe that um, God forgives sins. We believe that the body will be raised. We believe that uh, there is eternal life. But you see the difference between believing the truthfulness of those statements and resting your faith in a person. So to make um, a distinction, Calvin says, we believe in God, but we don't believe in the church. We don't rest our faith in the church. We rest our faith in God alone. It's another way to uh, connect the material that has gone before and the book four. This is how I would uh, do it. Book four, it seems to me, uh, is not a continuation of books one through three as such. So you have uh, you have here one through three plus four. 
that would be one way to see it. That would be kind of a, a normal way to see it, I think. But Calvin has given us book one, book two, book three, and now we go on to book four. But uh, I think rather uh, and seeing book four as a continuation of the first three books, after all, we've ended book three with the final resurrection. So in one sense, we have finished. Calvin has finished. He's gotten us to heaven. And um, that's the end. So rather than uh, seeing book four as the next step, you might say, I would think it would be better to see book four as a, a gathering up of uh, the themes that Calvin has already uh, discussed uh, and placing those in the concrete earthly experience of the believer. So you might say that one through three equals four. What we've studied so far in Calvin leads us into book four in which um, all that we have learned about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, will be worked out in our day-by-day earthly existence uh, in the church and as citizens of the state. Or another way to diagram it perhaps would be this. First three books point to book four. And book four uh, points back to the first three books. So there are different ways you can um, look at uh, the relationship between these books, but something like this I think is helpful. Or here's uh, another way. Someone has done it. Book one talks about fallen creatures. And really the first part of book two. And then book two and book four give us Christ's redemption and the church's ministry of the gospel, which then leads to book three, which is our salvation. Uh, book two is the, the inward work, or book three is the inward application, and uh, book four, uh, the outward helps or aids. So if you look at it this way, book one, shows our need, and the first part of book two shows our need. And then book two, the provision that God makes for our need in Christ and in the church, because it's the church that's going to minister Christ to us. We hear the gospel through the church. We are taught by the church. And uh, that leads us then to salvation in Christ. Okay, let's... uh, take a closer look at uh, the title and uh, exegete that uh, for a few minutes. The external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. 
the Society of Christ seems to be an unusual expression. I think uh, what Calvin means by that is fellowship with Christ, or to use an expression that Calvin uses more than fellowship with Christ, union with Christ. It's the way in which God invites us. Notice, um, Notice those words, invites us. God is giving an invitation. He's inviting us to join with his son. Society of Christ, as we move through book four, uh, will more and more take on also the uh, meaning of the church. But in the title, I think it uh, means uh, union with Christ or fellowship with Christ because one of the means or aids by which this is accomplished is the church. So, Society of Christ, God invites us into the Society of Christ. But uh, how does God do that? And Calvin says uh, God uses uh, external means. And if you go back to book three, you would say there is the, the primary agent, the Holy Spirit, which is an internal means. Holy Spirit, faith, repentance, and so on. But uh, book four talks about uh, external means. So not only is there the internal uh, work of the Spirit to invite us into the society of Christ or to unite us to Christ, uh, but there are these external means by which the Spirit works, Calvin says in 4.1.1, to beget and increase faith in us. That really is the whole theme of book three begetting and increasing faith in us. Spirit works to beget and increase faith in us. Book three. But there are external means by which the Spirit works. Not book four. And you come to those external means. You have a visible, earthly institution called the church. Uh, You have... um, Human words spoken by human lips, we call preaching or the sermon. You have uh, water, called baptism. You have bread and wine, which we eat, called the Lord's Supper. So these external means are used by the Holy Spirit to invite us into fellowship with Christ or union with Christ and to keep us therein. When Calvin explains this, as he does in 411, he he asks um, the question, why do we need this? Or why does God do this? Why can't we just end with the final resurrection? Why do we need these these external things? And um, 
Why do we need them? What is Calvin's answer there? Why do we need the church and baptism and the Lord's Supper and preaching? Why does God use these things? Why does he choose to work through external means? Does he have to do it that way? Well, not really. But we need these things because of our weakness, Calvin says. So it's, it's God's uh, graciousness to, to us. Uh, we're shut up in the prison house of our flesh. Calvin says, 411, we have not yet attained angelic rank. If we were angels, we would not need these external means. But uh, we're not. So God, in his wonderful providence, accommodates himself, that use of accommodation, which we noted so often in the Institutes. God accommodates himself to our capacity by giving us outward helps so that we, though still far off, can draw near to him. So we need, we need to hear the sermons. We need to hear the word preached by preachers. We need it, the church and all that the church does. We need to know that water has been placed upon us in baptism. We need to eat the bread and drink the wine. It's all for us because we're bodily creatures. We're not uh, of angelic rank. We're not spirits only. So these external means are important and useful by which God these are means by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein Calvin means to say that uh, these are, are God's uh, means these are means of, of grace the church sacraments they're not um, devices that belong to us that we can somehow uh, use to manipulate God. It was more of the medieval idea, sacramental system. And if you do it right, then you get grace. But Calvin says these are God's means by which he gives grace to us, outward helps to beget and increase faith within us and there are means uh, by which God invites us into fellowship with Christ and holds us therein or we could say as we go further in book four invites us into the church and holds us therein so there's not only there's not only salvation regeneration here but perseverance as well these means God uses uh, to bring us to faith and to keep us in faith. God doesn't um, raise us to perfection in a moment. Calvin says, we know that from our early study, book three of his doctrine of repentance. It's a lifelong race. God does not raise us to perfection in a moment, but makes us grow little by little, under the nurture of the church. 
That's one four one five. Place of the sanctification of or of the Christian is not the individual Christian. It's not the isolated uh, Christian. That is not the, the context of sanctification. It's the church, the congregation of believers in which all the blessings which God bestows upon them are mutually communicated to each other. 4.1.3 Calvin adds this too in 4.1.5 Although God's power is not bound to outward means, He has nonetheless bound us to this ordinary manner of teaching. In other words, God could do without the church. God could work uh, without the church if he so chose to do it that way but uh, we can't we are bound to the outward means God is not bound to the outward means it's his choice to give us a church and to give us baptism and to give us the Lord's Supper but um, it's not our choice as to whether we accept those or not a Christian cannot opt out of the visible church and the outward uh, means. There's no, there's no such thing in uh, Calvin as a kind of private Christianity. The corrective of the reformers uh, to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church uh, was not um, individual Christianity. They were not saying the structure is evil, come out of it, and uh, just relate directly to God without uh, the abuses and evil that we find in the visible church. The corrective of the reformers was a purified church. They never really, none of them, uh, move away from a high view of the church, just as high as the Roman Catholic view but uh, a purified church and then personal appropriation of the teachings of the church, not just a mechanical um, going through the motions is uh, what is uh, required. Okay, any questions on any of that? Uh, before we move on to the next point, 15 minutes, I could have gone back to um, have unfinished business on election, but I have the wrong notebook for that. <laughs> so I'll still do that at some point, but uh, let's, let's go ahead uh, and, and begin uh, with uh, the nature of the church then. What is the true church? That's an important question. How can one be right? with God, how can I find a gracious God and what is the church? Those were the, the two burning uh, issues, I would say, of the 16th century and really of any century, but uh, particularly of the 16th century. Is it possible uh, for a person to say, I'm no longer a Roman Catholic and still be a Christian? When I reject the Mass and leave the Catholic Church. Uh, am I a member of the Church anymore? Well, all kinds of answers were given uh, 
to questions like that, and uh, here's Calvin's um, way of dealing uh, with that. Uh, Calvin stresses, as did Augustine, but uh, contrary to uh, most Roman Catholic teaching in the medieval period, Calvin stresses that there are two churches, two true churches, a visible church and an invisible church. Now, we should not think of these as two entirely separate entities without any relation to each other, but they're not identical either. So, when we talk about the church, we have to talk about the church in two ways, um, visible and invisible. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. 417, all the elect from the beginning of the world. We can't see that church because we can't see what is before us or what is coming after us, nor can we truly see all the elect now. That's the church as God sees it. For us, that church is an object of faith. It's not an object of experience. We believe that there is an invisible church, pure church, perfect church in which God's elect uh, through all ages are gathered. But the church that we know, the church that we see, is the visible church. For us, that is an object of experience. And uh, Calvin's definition of visible church, 417, is the whole multitude of men he means people, spread out over the earth who profess to worship one God in Christ. So the visible church is the professing church everywhere. We cannot identify the visible church with the elect. We can't say that the visible church is the invisible church because we're not able uh, to do that. Uh, Calvin uh, quotes uh, Augustine, Many sheep are without, and many wolves are within. Augustine said there, there are sheep outside of the visible church, and there are wolves within the visible church. It's a little puzzling to know exactly what Augustine or Calvin uh, meant uh, by that. There are sheep outside. Uh, did they mean that there are elect people who, who are not yet justified? You know, there are elect people in, in the world, certainly, who are not saved yet uh, because uh, they haven't come to repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, they will because there are elect so they are not in the visible church, at least not yet. Or did uh, Calvin mean something else? Did he mean that um, it's possible for a person to be so cut off from the visible church, say in Roman Catholic territory, where there's no Protestant church, 
and Calvin was very much set against Protestant converts continuing to be members of Catholic churches and participating in the Mass. Or perhaps Christians in areas controlled by the Turks in Eastern Europe where there would not be the opportunity uh, to worship God in a church. There could be true Christians elect people not yet brought to faith or people who had come to faith who for one reason or another not of their own choosing but because of circumstances found themselves outside of the visible church but whatever Calvin meant whatever Augustine meant they certainly make it clear that they do not identify the visible church as the whole number of the elect. There are elect sheep outside. And they make it clear, too, that not everybody in the visible church is elect. There are wolves within. It's easier to understand that one uh, because um, that means that there are people who are visibly connected with the church who are not truly regenerate and could be described not as sheep but as wolves. So Calvin says uh, to know who are his is a prerogative belonging solely to God. We leave that uh, with him. So we cannot identify uh, the visible church with the elect. But we must judge the members of the Christian church with charity. Uh, here's a point that I think is important uh, because Calvin isn't always um, viewed as charitable, but uh, he certainly uh, is in many places and certainly at this point. He says in 418, we recognize as members of the church those who by confession of faith, by example of life, and by partaking of the sacraments, profess the same God and Christ with us. So, we see people who are members of the visible church. Uh, those people hold to the gospel. They live... Um, good lives, and they partake of the sacraments, and they profess to believe in God and in Christ. And Calvin says, as far as we're concerned, uh, we can call those people Christians. We don't have to know whether they are elect or not. We can't, and uh, we should not um, judge them harshly. Uh, we should accept their profession unless in some way they deny their profession by the way they live. These uh, aspects of the church, we could call them, invisible and visible, uh, not, uh, not two churches, but two aspects 
of the church. Church as God sees it. Church as we experience it. I think it uh, might be helpful to, to look at it this way. You can use a circle here for the invisible church. And then there's a circle for the visible church. And these are two aspects of the church. And these overlap to, to a certain degree. You could do it something like this. So there is an overlapping of these uh, circles. Part of the, the visible membership falls outside the sphere of election. So you've got part of the visible church that cannot be identified with the invisible church. Uh, there's chaff as well as wheat. And some of the elect, some of the invisible church, fall outside the sphere of the visible community for reasons that I discussed uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, one place where Calvin makes this clear is that unlike the Roman Catholics and unlike the Lutherans, Calvin did not insist that baptism was necessary for salvation. You know, baptism is necessary for salvation. Uh, then there is no way that an unbaptized person uh, could be saved. And it's necessary then to be a member of the visible church for salvation. One place uh, where we see this is Calvin's commentary on John 3.5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Calvin deals with that uh, text uh, in, at some length and actually comes to the view that it doesn't have anything to do with baptism at all, water baptism. But uh, he says this, but even were we to grant that Christ is speaking of baptism here, we ought not to press his words so as to make him confine salvation to the outward sign. On the contrary, he connects water with the Spirit because under the visible sign he testifies and seals the newness of life which by his Spirit God alone affects in us. It's We're born of the water and the Spirit. The water uh, for Calvin uh, is uh, the cleansing which the Holy Spirit brings in regeneration. And Calvin goes on to say, it is true indeed that we are excluded from salvation if we neglect baptism. In this sense, I confess it is necessary, but it is absurd to confine assurance of salvation to the sign. In other words, the outward means is there, and we, we can't reject it if we have opportunity to embrace it. But the salvation doesn't reside uh, in the outward means. It resides in the inward cleansing of the Holy Spirit, uh, which has already uh, been accomplished. So, by not uh, requiring baptism for salvation, uh, Calvin 
is able uh, to think of people who have been regenerated, but for one reason or another, not of their own choice. It would be wrong if it was of their own choice, but for one reason or another, have not uh, been baptized as still true members of the church, members of, indeed, the invisible church. So that's one way that uh, Calvin looks at the church, visible and invisible. But uh, there's another way that he looks at the church, and this is at uh, the visible church, and that is true and false. And that's what we'll uh, come to next time. Question? Some said that the uh, visible and visible distinction is somewhat clumsy or unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with that? Yes. That? Yes. Um, certainly not uh, to Calvin. He's very uh, clear that this is a, a useful um, way of looking at the church. Uh, not to the Westminster divines. They found it a useful way of looking at the church uh, also. Um, I rather like it. I think it's it's helpful because um, you have the concept of the <coughs> invisible church, which is always there to guard against our identifying the earthly institution as all the church should be. So I think we need it. The danger, I think, is that it can be used by some, and perhaps has been used by some, to de-emphasize the importance of the visible church. I'm a member of the invisible church, so I don't have to go to church this Sunday, uh, because that's the visible church, and that's not so important. So if it's used to de-emphasize the importance of the visible church, then it's very bad. If we use the idea of the invisible church to speak of a, of a pure church without spot and without blemish, which um, is the church that's going to be in heaven, then I think we can use it to judge uh, the failures of the visible church. So I would say let's keep it. I think it's useful. Okay. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.